And now to introduce today's grand round speaker, I am delighted to welcome Dr. Matthew Evans, Dr. Matthew Evans, a Providence neurologist specializing in care for patients with epilepsy and seizures. Dr. Evans earned his medical degree at A.T. Still University Kirksville College of Osteopathic Medicine and completed neurology uh, residency at Michigan State University. Dr. Evans served as the assistant director of the Functional Brain Mapping Center at the Atlantic Neuroscience Institute in Summit, New Jersey, as well as served as a clinician educator during his time at Michigan State. I understand that Dr. Evans enjoys a variety of interests outside of medicine, including having previously worked as a whitewater rafting guide in the Grand Canyon, uh, certainly on my list of, of adventures to explore. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Evans, for your outstanding care of our patients and also your willingness to come teach us at Grand Rounds today. So I will turn it over to you. Thank you. Uh, great. Thanks a lot. Thanks, everybody, for joining. Uh, Whitewater Raft, yeah, it's been a while, but uh, amazing. If you ever have the opportunity, definitely uh, do, do that trip. Uh, so today, I uh, just wanted to uh, speak about uh, epilepsy care, no disclosures, um, present an overview of epilepsy, really uh, define what that is before we dive into a lot of the approach and uh, treatment. But uh, first time seizure, somebody comes in, uh, to, uh, just want to make sure we're doing the right thing um, and uh, approach to the workup, uh, treatment management, um, talk briefly about the epilepsy resources that we have here in the Oregon region, specifically at Providence, uh, patient access and leave plenty of time for Q&A. Uh, to properly treat any medical condition, uh, including epilepsy, we really need to know uh, uh, to define what that is. Uh, and in 2014, a group uh, led by Bob Fisher at UCLA um, and a bunch of other uh, epileptologists, they came up with a, a kind of an operational or practical uh, definition of epilepsy. Uh, classically, uh, down uh, you can see uh, number one, it's uh, at least two unprovoked seizures or reflex seizures like a photosensitive epilepsy, and they need to those two need to be 24 hours apart. Uh, the number two is new. Uh, you can diagnose epilepsy even after a single uh, unprovoked seizure or these are reflex seizures. Um, and the probability of having another seizure, uh, which is greater than 60% in the next 10 years. And that 60% threshold, we'll get into what that means. Um, and then if you have uh, an epilepsy diagnosis or a specific syndrome such as tuberous sclerosis, and you have a first time seizure, well, you certainly are going to have a second one and, and you can. it's appropriate to diagnose epilepsy at that point. Uh, the other interesting thing is they, they decided or came up with a way to actually remove the diagnosis of epilepsy. If somebody has uh, an individual with a childhood onset epilepsy, absence epilepsy, for instance, and they have aged out of that particular diagnosis, uh, you know, uh, late teens or early 20s, and if they go 10 years without having a seizure and no seizures um, off medications for five years, you can actually remove that uh, diagnosis. Um, to properly classify seizures is very important and we classify those and break them down into either focal onset, uh, generalized onset, or if we don't know, there's always this unknown category. 
Um, the uh, generalized seizures are the more obvious ones. The you know you know grand mal we typically don't use that term anymore, although you'll see it. Um, so that would be a, a motor manifestation of a generalized seizure, uh, a tonic clonic. Uh, but there's also just seizures that are clonic, tonic, myoclonic, uh, atonic. So just drop attacks. Um, so those are more of your generalized and you're also your absence seizures. Those are that's a generalized um, epilepsy. Uh, the focal onset seizures, uh, either you have your awareness retained, which was uh, previously known as uh, simple partial seizures, and or your awareness is impaired, uh, which is uh, previously complex partial. Oh, sorry about that. Uh, the uh, motor manifestations and non-motor manifestations of the focal seizures are there as well. Um, you can simply have aut some automatisms, uh, mouth, you know, lip smacking is a classic one, pill rolling, uh, you can, but you can also have the other motor manifestations of, of, of looks like a generalized seizure, uh, except for it's uh, simply uh, typically, you know, unilateral or one, one side. And then the motor, uh, non-motor manifestations really can look like an absence seizure. So the differentiation is through EEG. Um, and other factors. So just a, a cartoon. So generalized seizures, really diffuse onset. The brain fires at the same time, and and the focal seizures have a specific uh, region. So we choose though to use more descriptive terms. And the focal seizures, really, what their manifestation is, depends on the region of the uh, brain uh, being involved, such as if somebody has a seizure in this particular region, uh, right here in the motor strip, their hand will become clonic. And then we can also see seizures start and then they kind of march, sure, called Jacksonian march. So it might start in the hand, move up the arm, the shoulders, the face, the arm and the leg, which is very interesting. Um, seizures usually start in the, it was a bimodal distribution. So the young and the old, uh, but there's also people develop epilepsy at any, essentially any age. But uh, um, interestingly enough, the uh, manifestation or uh, these, this is the incident. So new onset diagnosis of epilepsy um, is more common after the age of 65 than it is a childhood illness. So, uh, and that's a misconception that childhood typically begins in um, uh, childhood or uh, infancy. There's various different causes of epilepsy, and uh, you know previously there's this you know, over you know three fourths of it is uh, kind of idiopathic. Uh, we know that a lot of those are um, either genetic or uh, susceptibility, um, but very uh, few. I would say you know typically less than half of uh, patients with epilepsy uh, have a known or identifiable diagnosis. Uh, seizures are very common, just a single seizure, uh, even up to 9%. So almost 10% of people might have a seizure in their lifetime, which is a lot higher than, than you think. Uh, a third of those are febrile seizures, so um, they don't do go on to develop epilepsy, most of those. Uh, but epilepsy does affect uh, one in 26 uh, people. And so the, on the Epilepsy Foundation, uh, they, they really push uh, to, you know, people to say, you know, this isn't such 
such an uncommon disorder, one in 26 people will develop epilepsy, and that number uh, kind of uh, stands out. Uh, but about 1%, uh, up to maybe 1.5% of people in the U.S. Um, have epilepsy. Um, it's the fourth most common neurological disorder, migraine being number one, uh, stroke and Alzheimer's, and then um, epilepsy. So just a couple of cases, uh, uh, this, uh, you know, three cases. One is a 48-year-old male with a first-time seizure. Uh, the next one, 32-year-old female uh, with uncontrolled convulsions, and then another one, a uh, 20-year-old female with uncontrolled convulsions. Obviously, you don't know if uh, they have epilepsy, you need more context. So uh, let's just do, so uh, the first time uh, convulsion in this uh, male, no medical uh, history, uh, on exam, some subtle uh, weakness. Uh, blood work, uh, CT showing a, a right frontal tumor, EEG slowing. So a patient has a, essentially a provoked focal seizure. Um, if you went on to develop uh, more seizures, you know, specific uh, diagnosis of epilepsy, but with a focal lesion, abnormal EEG, essentially a patient has epilepsy. Um, you would start this patient on anticonvulsants, and we'll get into that a little bit more in depth. Um, uh, so uh, next case, a 32-year-old uh, with uncontrolled seizures for two years, um, history of migraines and spells, uh, tried eight different anticonvulsants. A normal workup um, and uh, EEG in a, our monitoring unit video EEG capturing the typical seizures um, consisting of body thrusting, flailing arms. So the diagnosis is psychogenic um, and it's more of a psychological evaluation. And these patients have had the diagnosis on average for seven years and tried at least three different medications. And uh, that's uh, something that we need to clarify. Um, uh, the last one, a 20-year-old female with uncontrolled seizures, um, workup essentially negative initially, but the uh, NMRI showing uh, mesial temporal sclerosis, uh, spikes on EEG, and the diagnosis is definitely epilepsy. The initial treatment would be anticonvulsants, uh, but uh, uh, this uh, lesion is very amenable uh, to epilepsy surgery. So with the kind of definitions out of the way, um, want to go into uh, the kind of the workup uh, and diagnosis of a first time seizure uh, going on uh, just with the history. If, uh, as you're all familiar with neurology, it can be complex, but uh, the money is in the history, to be honest. We do uh, testing. Uh, to essentially confirm our clinical suspicion. And we have, um, you know, hour long visits for new patients, which I know sounds like a luxury <laughs> and, uh, from a primary care situation. But uh, thankfully, we, uh, Providence has given us that amount of time to really, you know, I would say three fourths of the time just listening uh, to the patient's story. And you can most of the time come up with the diagnosis by listening, which is a really um, interesting aspect of neurology just in general. Do a neuro exam, of course, um, blood tests uh, when we need to, uh, drug screen being one of the more important things if patients hit the ER, and that's uh, extremely helpful for us. Uh, LPs is, uh, you know, only if infection is suspected. EEG, a CT or MRI is, is really important in uh, stratifying these patients for first time seizure. 
really need to differentiate uh, a first time provoked seizure. You know, there's a, a list of things uh, that would be more common for provoked seizures uh, versus um, uh, truly and, and unprovoked. So uh, more common on this list, we, we all see alcohol withdrawal related seizures, uh, drug related seizures. Um, interestingly, if there's a couple thing, a couple drugs that have come up uh, just anecdotally, uh, but more and more common is the use of Kratom, which is interesting, uh, and also um, high dose THC, like THC vape pens uh, and dabs. So just, you know, these concentrated resins. So uh, again, some seemingly innocuous uh, substances, but um, causing uh, trigger seizures, but even, you know, penicillin classically. So there's, you know, prescription drugs, uh, you know, Wellbutrin, Tramadol. So these are all, you know, provoked seizures, but we really need to focus in on, um, you know, when we talk about first time seizure, differentiating between provoked and unprovoked. So the unprovoked seizures is, uh, there's some uh, guidelines from the American Academy of Neurology. So these are this is kind of standard of care and approach to seizures. Um, essentially what it boils down to is uh, the uh, class or level A evidence uh, for uh, what we need to be doing is uh, the exam, uh, the um, in neuroimaging in the, uh, regards to CT or MRI, um, you know, MRI preferred, of course, um, and uh, EEG. So these are all important to help stratify patients uh, in the workup of an un unprovoked seizure. Um, if somebody does have a single unprovoked seizure, the chance of them having a, another seizure within the next few years is between 25 or sorry, you know, 25 and maybe 20 and 45%. Uh, if you have a second seizure, um, the chance of having a, a third seizure just goes up dramatically. And somebody with a third seizure, they're going to have another one. Uh, again, these are unprovoked. If somebody has this recurrent alcohol withdrawal seizures, that's not epilepsy. So testing um, EEG and neuroimaging, the EEG is the highest yield within the first day or two, and it can be very, very helpful uh, as it's you're well aware EEG within a day or two can be uh, very challenging um, just by simply logistics uh, availability of technicians and machines at a particular hospital. Um, uh, you know, yeah, Providence uh, versus even other places in, in the in the Portland area and outside of Portland, almost forget it. So uh, again, you know, sleep deprived EEG is uh, either, you know, it's a much higher yield than just a random uh, spot EEG as well. So MRI uh, neuroimaging uh, with an epilepsy protocol. So there's very specific protocols. And so if somebody does come in with a first time seizure, you can specify and there are some uh, fine cuts through the mesial temporal section uh, and then uh, typically a coronal T2 image as well. Uh, again, be aware of seizure mimics. Mimics. So, if somebody uh, comes in with, uh, you know, TIA or you know, some metabolic disturbance, 
the, these things uh, can look like seizure. Convulsive syncope is very common. Somebody has a cardiac dysrhythmia or hypotensive event and uh, hypoperfusion to the cortex, and you have a seizure. Essentially, it's a you know tonic-clonic seizure for all intents and purposes, but it's definitely not um, epilepsy. And uh, keep on the, the differential uh, given certain circumstances, uh, the psychogenic and even malingering, which we do see. Um, just want to point out as well, misdiagnosis sometimes can be worse than delayed diagnosis. So somebody comes in with the first time and even maybe recurrent seizure, and if it's not entirely clear uh, and the workup's still pending, uh, really want to be concerned about uh, giving the proper diagnosis. And somebody that's labeled with epilepsy and all this, you know, they have that mindset that, oh, I have epilepsy and now their whole world has changed. And then to take that diagnosis away, it's, it's <laughs> it can be quite challenging. Uh, so going into, uh, you know, we've defined seizures and, and epilepsy, gone through some uh, clinical scenarios and brief workup. Uh, so again, focusing in on uh, treatment, it really depends. Is it a provoked seizure uh, or is it truly an unprovoked um, event? Um, single seizure versus recurrent. Uh, what are the testing results? CT, MRI, EG. Um, is this a focal or generalized? So these are all uh, treatment questions that, that we need to uh, have in the back of our minds in order to uh, properly uh, go about uh, even considering a treatment. Um, any for a treatment, just you know, with any disorders, you really want to maximize quality of life just because we can diagnose epilepsy uh, if we can control all of seizures, great, but if they're sedated and they have side effects and they're really not able to tolerate the dose of medications that will control all of their seizures. And sometimes, uh, you know, how many seizures do we allow? And it really is, uh, some people would rather sleep all day than have another seizure and just be, they're, you know, so uh, worried about that. And other people would rather have a few seizures rather than feel kind of dopey all day or, you know, extremely tired or dizzy, fatigued. So focusing on seizures and side effects, but really mo uh, trying to maximize quality of life. The treatment choice uh, for epilepsy really depends on is this a focal uh, seizure or uh, generalized, and that's that is really important. The the wrong choice of medications, even with an anticonvulsant, can uh, cause more seizures. Um, we'll uh, go over that in a minute. So. So really for the right individual, depending on their current uh, concurrent medical conditions, if somebody has migraine, uh, then choosing an anticonvulsant, an appropriate anticonvulsant with properties uh, and that uh, could continue, could uh, help with migraine, uh, such as topiramate, uh, zanisamide, uh, or others, uh, then that might be a better choice. If they have a lot of pain, uh, something with uh, such as pregabalin or gabapentin, um, uh, could um, help, although they're kind of weaker seizure medications uh, to have those uh, consideration. Uh, mood disorder, if somebody ha is, uh, you know, prone to depression, uh, severe anxiety, panic, you know, other mental health disorder, um, the very commonly prescribed uh, levetiracetam or Keppra could 
essentially uh, worsen that and put somebody into profound depression with suicidality or and or completion and uh, you know severe even schizophrenic type behavior. So it, medications are not benign. And so, uh, and conversely, as somebody that has a disorder that, such as, um, you know, any mood disorder, uh, mood stabilizing medications such as uh, valproate, lamotrigine, oxycarbazepine can be very helpful. Um, uh, if somebody is uh, overweight, uh, then we have you know top topiramides and isamide. Those can help with weight loss, and so again, you know, uh, that, that can be very very helpful. Uh, we need to be uh, conscious, uh, cognizant of medication interactions. Uh, there are a lot of them, <laughs> uh, and it can be uh, challenging if somebody has a lot of medications and to try and choose an anticonvulsant that doesn't interact and cause problems. Um, and somebody, a uh, female, a young female, childbearing potential or that's currently pregnant, uh, that uh, can be another challenge as well. So just uh, again, going back to the guidelines, if somebody does have uh, unprovoked seizures and their risk, uh, their baseline risk is uh, you know, 20 to 45 percent of having a second seizure, and that's in the next uh, five years, um, then we should advise patients on, um, on a treatment. So we typically do not treat a patient with a new onset seizure if the testing is normal. Um, normal exam, normal EEG, normal MRI, even if it's unprovoked, the risk of starting treatment and side effects of medications tends to outweigh any benefit, um, at least for uh, even it can prolong the diagnosis uh, or the second seizure, uh, but essentially uh, no treatment if, uh, again, normal uh, exam, normal testing. Uh, again, we're talking unprovoked seizures. If it's provoked, just you know, st uh, stop whatever uh, potentially what, what triggered the seizure, and, and then no other treatments needed. Um, so we do need to consider um, starting treatment even after a single seizure if somebody does have a brain lesion, um, or and or uh, spikes or abnormal you know epileptiform activity on an EEG. If somebody comes in with a first-time seizure and I see a generalized spike and wave on their EEG, they have epilepsy and they're going to have another seizure. And uh, so we have to, uh, again, be conscious of that. Um, if somebody has a nocturnal seizure, and I, I, I like the term because it's very helpful in saying, you know, nighttime seizure, uh, but essentially uh, I would say sleep related uh, because somebody taking a nap during the day, they could have a seizure during their sleep. So it's more kind of a, a, a sleep um, activation. Uh, medications. <laughs> You can see, uh, you know, initially at the you know, 1800s to 1900s, we uh, did not, early 1900s, did not have uh, very good treatments for epilepsy. Some bromide uh, salts, which are actually you can still get for animals, surprisingly. Um, at the phenobarbital uh, was the mainstay 
for treatment and uh, still uh, a lot of patients on it. And whenever we try and get patients off the seas, it can be very, very effective, but also, uh, you know, some side effects. Um, there's uh, some animal models for screening uh, starting in the you know, early 19. Uh, hundreds and uh, you can see this a slew of medications uh, that was uh, uh, discovered uh, and approved for epilepsy uh, starting down here with you know the phenytoin so we go bromide salts to uh, phenobarbital to phenytoin you can see how old these medications are and how commonly they're still prescribed uh, and then going up the list, uh, you know, primidone or mycelin, uh, ethylsuximide, uh, very specific for the absence seizures. Uh, and then in 1975, they started doing uh, so screening for any newly approved as, uh, medications, just in general for even antihypertensive medication. They're uh, screened also for epilepsy, uh, anti-convulsant properties. And so after that, there's a whole new generation of uh, um, uh, epilepsy medications. Um, so this uh, second generation going, you know, Depakote, uh, diazepam, uh, clonazepam, clobazam. Um, so after this uh, screening program uh, was um, uh, put in place, uh, then you have all of these kind of third generation medications, which more commonly uh, coming out of this uh, was, uh, you know, lamotrigine, oxcarbazepine, trileptol, um, felbamate, which is an amazing drug, but then we found out that it causes blood dysgrages and cardiac toxicity. You see people on it, but they have to essentially sign their life away before they get on it. Um, so gabapentin, topiramate, so all of these medications uh, started, uh, you know, exponentially coming to the market, essentially kind of you know, in the early nineties, still having medications approved, uh, you know, uh, berberazetams, uh, more specific, similar to um, levetiracetam, just a thousand times more affinity to the specific SV2A receptor. So a lot of medications, a lot of choices, and so it can be very complicated. Um, what we're trying to do with all of our medications is essentially uh, decrease the excitation or increase the inhibition. Uh, what that does is it quiets down the neuron. So if we have this excitatory uh, synapse in the, the presynaptic terminal, uh, the synapse in the postsynaptic uh, uh, dendritic uh, uh, component of the, the neuron, you, there are, uh, you can see in the orange boxes uh, where the various medications um, that can help either the uh, these channels are we can say modulated most of them are blocked as uh, some of them increase the, the release of inhibitory neurotransmitters um, essentially what you're doing trying to do is knock down the excitation uh, with uh, or you as uh, the the inhibitor so an inhibitory uh, a neuron uh, again you're we're trying to modulate the um, either the the release or, or blocking a, a receptor so again decreasing excitation increasing inhibition 
the mechanism of action is well well beyond what we need to get into uh, but uh, a lot of our medications are uh, sodium channel blocking medicines and uh, there's uh, various other you know calcium channel GABA uh, enhancers glutamate blockers so again decreasing um, excitation um, the sodium channel blocking medications um, you know carbamazepine phenytoin um, oxcarbazepine, lamotrigine, uh, these are, are very, very common. So one of the um, uh, considerations and, and issues with the um, so anticonvulsants is uh, what, where they're metabolized, a lot of them through the liver. And uh, depending on the cytochrome P450 system, they, they may start to interact with other medications. Uh, again, very complicated. And uh, it, you know, this stuff we all have to look up other than a few very common and uh, once you know set to c9 with phenytoin uh, you know can affect um, uh, warfarin levels for instance um, brand versus generic is another issue that we run into most of uh, there there are many uh, studies and many statements on this even through the academy of uh, american academy of neurology and american epilepsy society um, assessed uh, brand versus generic and we feel that the generic equivalents uh, are uh, effective and can help control seizures. The concern is when uh, the medications are switched from one generic company to another because they do change because of the way that their you know, proprietary uh, formulation of how they're e either you know absorbed into the system or even get into the brain through the blood-brain barrier. Um, FDA approval for a generic drug, they basically uh, need to have the uh, underlying chemical uh, for instance, you know, Lamictal brand name and Lamotrigine generic, and now there's 10 different generic companies that have the Lamotrigine chemical uh, and the, again, the different fillers and uh, salts that they use. Uh, but they pay essentially pay 60 grand <laughs> and uh, if the FDA uh, approves their uh, you know, if they fulfill this criteria, then they uh, get the, their medication approved. So you need to, to uh, uh, demonstrate bioequivalence of brand name, but that bioequivalence uh, has to fall into a range between 80 and 125% of the brand. So for instance, uh, one uh, generic company might have a bioavailability bio of 80%. Uh, and they're approved, and another one might have um, bioavailability of 125%, which is approved. If you go from uh, somebody uh, seizure controlled at one generic, uh, you have know, it's 125% approved, and then the next month the pharmacy contracts with another company, and you get a, a generic uh, manufacturer that was approved at 80%. That's a dramatic change in uh, bioavailability. Uh, bioavailability of the medication and seizures can occur. So one generic to the next is, can be a problem. Uh, but if somebody's controlled with a specific generic, it's usually fine and not a problem. So the, the medications that we choose depends on the epilepsy type. Uh, for instance, uh, for generalized seizures, 
um, the best evidence that we have, and this is you know going off evidence-based medicine, which doesn't explain the whole picture, uh, but uh, valproate and topiramate have the best evidence, uh, but also shown to be effective. Uh, Zinesmide, levetiracetam, interestingly, some of the um, other uh, medications that we choose for focal onset seizures, uh, uh, trileptal, uh, dilantin, uh, phenytoin, uh, carbamazepine, um, lamotrigine um, as well. Uh, and now, um, uh, there is some more evidence uh, for lacosamide uh, or Vimpan. So the in clinical practice, there's just a handful of medications that we use, uh, even though this is you know the evidence-based uh, story. Uh, but for generalized epilepsy, out of that huge list of medications that we saw on that chart, that kind of boils down to just uh, a handful of medicines that can uh, specifically work for generalized seizures. Um, more, the most common is levetiracetam. I mean, somebody comes in with recurrent seizures, uh, you can almost bet that they're uh, gonna be either started on uh, phenytoin, uh, which is unfortunate, um, or uh, levetiracetam. And it's almost a reflex now that that's the first medication that is kind of a go-to, which is appropriate in, I would say, a lot of cases because it's more of a broad spectrum medication, um, uh, but uh, also uh, commonly prescribed for generalized uh, lamotrigine, so pyramates, and isomide, and uh, newly, uh, as of the past few years, of Vimpad or lacosamide. And these are approved for monotherapy. Um, the caveat to that is uh, some of the, even some of the medications for generalized seizures, uh, such as lamotrigine, uh, can exacerbate a very specific type of myoclonic epilepsy. So it's very challenging even for the epileptologist. So definitely don't expect everybody to know the, the, uh, the, the small uh, caveats to, to even the evidence-based uh, treatments. Um, for focal seizures, the best uh, evidence-based medicine that we have, uh, again, carbamazepine, phenytoin, which are old medicines, and we rarely prescribe those. I would say, uh, you know, never prescribe them as uh, first-line agents, uh, unless somebody, that there's specific reasons. So, so if somebody was in the, you know, third world country and the, what they had was carbamazepine, then of course, that's what you choose, uh, or phenytoin. The uh, levetiracetam, again, very, very commonly prescribed, and, and zinisamide. Um, uh, but the essentially, all of the anticonvulsants uh, with maybe a couple of exceptions, one being ethosuximide. Uh, but the all essentially you choose a medication that's available for seizure and it should be able to help focal seizures uh, as opposed to the generalized. You really need a firm diagnosis because some of these medications for uh, focal seizures uh, can exacerbate generalized epilepsy. Uh, one example is uh, I worked with a, on a neurofloor with a, a, a nurse in um, New Jersey. Um, she was started on gabapentin. Uh, she was a neurology nurse. Uh, she was starting gabapentin after a knee surgery. Uh, requiring high dose to control the pain, and she had her first generalized tonic-clonic seizure. Uh, come to find out she had generalized epilepsy, which was exacerbated or, or unmasked, essentially, from gabapentin. So your treatments, uh, one, one just a, a quick uh, patient uh, history, uh, patient with severe depression, 
also having hypertension uh, and on hydrochlorothiazide for that, uh, what anti-seizure drug or anti-convulsant uh, would you recommend? Uh, even for us, it might be challenging, uh, but we try to eliminate the older medications immediately. So phenobarbital and phenytoin, we just kind of scrap and we wouldn't necessarily choose those initially. Uh, uh, oxcarbazepine, um, depending on the epilepsy type, uh, levetiracetam is a broad spectrum working for generalized and focal seizures and would be a really great choice except for the severe and major depression. Uh, so on this list, uh, you could try Keppra and it may be fine, uh, but it, we have to pay attention to mood. But I would say none of the above and probably choose something else like Lamotrigine to, to treat this patient. Um, uh, it doesn't matter what we what medication we choose if patients don't take their meds. Um, in this particular uh, study uh, published in Epilepsy and Behavior showed um, out of 408 patients that 29% of them reported being non-adherent to their treatment. So it's very frustrating when patients continue to have seizures and they feel that their seizure medication is not working. They're very upset, um, and, but you, you know, a third of those patients aren't even taking their medicine. Uh, and it uh, is a problem. People lose their jobs. Uh, people can't drive. Uh, and it, it's uh, yeah, there's several things that come up. Uh, either some people are very, very fragile. If they miss their medicines for a few hours, they'll have seizures. Some people might be a day or two. They might be confused about the dose. Uh, I, I, you know, uh, obviously things that can help, setting alarms, pill boxes. Some people will put their, if their bottle's upright, they know that they took their nighttime meds and they flip it upside, bottle upside down. So if it's on their cap, then they know that they took their morning meds. The pill box is probably the most helpful. Um, when I go into the um, epilepsy clinical services that we have here at Providence, um, and for the remainder and then get into questions. But um, we, uh, the clinical services here, uh, we have uh, our offices at uh, St. Vincent's um, and uh, Prof Portland, but we also have uh, telemedicine specific sites uh, with uh, nurses that uh, can uh, have the patients in the office um, uh, at Seaside and Hood River, and then obviously the virtual um, visits that we uh, have all uh, grown to know and love over the past couple of years. Um, diagnostic services, all of the, you know, the gamut of during not diagnostic testing. We do have an epilepsy diet therapy program uh, and conjunction and uh, working closely with the dietary a couple of the dietitians. Uh, we perform epilepsy surgeries. So we have a functional neurosurgeon and uh, Dr. Sapa Laveria uh, that does our neurosurgery. And we have a psychologist, uh, which is pretty rare to have in subspecialty. Uh, but it's uh, we yeah, got some funding through the um, uh, the Providence Foundation, uh, which is uh, really really amazing to have in, in our office. So one of uh, we're one of two uh, nationally accredited uh, level four centers in all of Oregon. Uh, the other being OHSU. Um, there's uh, four epileptologists who are interviewing um, for a fifth. Uh, we have a nurse practitioner, um, again, the psychologists, uh, our epilepsy RN, and uh, supportive staff 
um, that at, at, as part of our center. Something that is uh, unique uh, in uh, pro within Providence and actually within Oregon and uh, nationwide is is very uh, rare uh, to have uh, an actual clinic dedicated or clinic time dedicated to new onset seizures, really to improve access. Um, be able to counsel patients appropriately, uh, classify patients uh, properly, uh, get them on treatment if needed, and especially if some if uh, somebody's pregnant or, or childbearing potential is really really important uh, to jump right on top of, of things. So, uh, we did a study a few years back and uh, and uh, trying to it's more of a, a quality. Uh, control quality improvement type study uh, led by Evan Vertig, one of our docs. Um, we wanted to improve um, access first uh, to a uh, time to um, access the EEG and um, also you know, imaging um, a treatment with anticonvulsants. Uh, reduce uh, or see if we, you know, a subsequent uh, ER uh, reduce encounters and uh, ultimately, obviously, healthcare costs and uh, patient uh, morbidity, uh, and then counseling women um, about uh, seizures and, and epilepsy. So what we found. Um, at retrospective analysis is it took um, up for after a first time seizure, it took up to tw uh, 27 days to get an EEG um, as part of our first seizure clinic. This dropped down to 2.6 uh, days. So we're trying to get patients in for EEG, neuroimaging, and to see an epileptologist within seven days. Um, and the uh, uh, number two, uh, so uh, the amount of time to see a neurologist, just in a neurologist, a general neurologist, was 31 days. This is after first time seizure. And we were able to knock that down to 6.4 days and really uh, have this uh, service to uh, patients, but also to uh, primary care and the ER to um, you know, really have patients evaluated in a timely manner. Uh, the neuroimaging, either we wanted to try and see if we could improve a C, uh, MRI instead of CT. Uh, most uh, everyone, you know, 85% of people were uh, getting CT um, um, after, uh, a, you know, two years. We're able to uh, improve the uh, MRI from 26% up to 48%, which is, uh, you know, very uh, helpful. Um, for us, uh, mean time from the uh, ER, or sorry, the, the mean ER encounters went from uh, 0.6 of uh, repeat customers down to 0.1, uh, and um, the uh, percentage of individuals uh, that were prescribed on older medications uh, after initial seizures, such as phenytoin, um, they that uh, went down to zero. <laughs> so if we were able to get patients in very quickly, uh, get them diagnosed, and uh, get them on the right treatment if, if needed. And they, this is just more of a, a bar a graph analysis. Don't need to go into that. Um, as part of our center, we do um, have the epilepsy monitoring unit, a five-bed unit. Uh, we moved all of this uh, resources to St. Vincent uh, uh, to consolidate, and that's where we do our surgeries. Um, so the average uh, day of uh, admission is uh, three days, uh, time of admission duration. 
about three days. Um, so really trying to record seizure, classify epilepsy versus non-epileptic spells. Um, just a cartoon of this left temporal lip spike here. Um, again, uh, dietary services, uh, we, we don't use a, a classic ketogenic diet at our center. Uh, uh, we use a modified Atkins diet. So mod the, the Atkins diet, uh, you know, about 65% uh, fat and the other uh, of, uh, of very limited carbohydrates and the rest of it protein. Um, low, glycemic, low glycemic index treatment is also um, uh, an option for patients. Typically, uh, we don't do that at our center. More popular in uh, different uh, you know, regions. Um, and again, you know, classic ketogenic diets very challenging for patients. About 90 percent, 90 plus percent fat, and just some kind of uh, a cartoon of, of a typical American diet. Uh, versus the um, Atkins versus the ketogenic diet, um, how much the percentage of fat increases with each, with each diet. We also have um, epilepsy surgery evaluations to the, if patient has uh, generalized versus focal epilepsy, if they have a focal uh, region, uh, focal onset, even if it's non-lesional, uh, we can map that out electrically um, and uh, move uh, forward to uh, epilepsy surgery. If they have, um, you know, medically refractory, they've tried at least two medications at adequate doses, and they should be um, evaluated for epilepsy surgery. So if, if you've you know, have patients that have been on a couple of medicines and they're still seizing, then the uh, we try and get them in for a surgical evaluation as soon as possible. I'm not saying that they can have surgery, but the ones that are amenable to surgery uh, acting sooner rather than later is very important. Uh, the non-invasive uh, uh, testing, you know, e uh, video EEG on the in the MRI. Um, the uh, surgical invasive testing we do uh, is called stereo EEG or depth electrodes, where these um, uh, electrodes are, are placed stereotactically uh, into various uh, regions of the brain uh, or uh, on the surface uh, grid electrodes. Uh, so really start out with the anticonvulsant therapy, move to diet therapy. If that's not helpful, uh, we can put kind of cannabis. That's a whole different uh, uh, discussion, but that can be on a, you know, either there is a, an anticonvulsant or cannabidiol or epidiolex that's approved for certain types of epilepsy. Uh, but for the most part, that's not a main uh, state of treatment, although that's a question we get asked uh, many, many times a day. Uh, there are uh, implantable devices, uh, VNS, RNS, and then the surgery. More commonly, if we can identify a localized lesion, we're doing uh, radio uh, or uh, laser uh, surgery and uh, uh, laser ablation. So a vagus nerve stimulator, people are uh, familiar with that, uh, a battery or generator placed under the chest. Um, and that can be uh, very helpful in a certain patient uh, population to help reduce seizures. It's not a cure, uh, certainly help. Um, more uh, recently, as of the past few years, 
um, there's uh, an RNS uh, responsive nerve stimulator uh, or neuro uh, pace. Uh, this is an implantable battery that they drill a, a bed out of the skull and we can implant electrodes right into the um, seizure onset uh, area or zone and uh, help continuously monitor for seizure. And when it detects a seizure, it can uh, deliver a shock uh, to uh, or a, you know stimulus to that area of the brain and uh, to stop the seizure, kind of akin to uh, um, AICD. Uh, the uh, laser ablation is performed uh, with uh, MRI guidance. So this is uh, an, an placed by the neurosurgeon, uh, placed into the skull, uh, through the skull into the region and um, the area is heated up or cauterized. And the tip also has uh, an ability to cool the tissue around it uh, so that as you heat up and, and uh, cauterize the, the uh, epileptogenic, epileptogenic zone, you're not in, in that damaging the surrounding tissue. Um, resective surgery, uh, brain mapping, this is all, all things that uh, we were able to do at our center. I wanted to end with a slide um, about neurology access. We talked about our first seizure clinic within the first week is ideal. It's a stretch to one to two weeks, uh, depending on availability, EEG and MRI. Um, uh, but we do have about three month wait time. That it has significantly reduced now that we uh, were able to uh, hire a nurse practitioner and that will reduce further when we get our fifth epileptologist. Uh, but uh, we, we do realize that access is an issue. If somebody does come in with a first time seizure, however, and they're not on treatment, uh, then we do have uh, ability to get them in as soon as possible. We just, we just make it work. Um, uh, urgent uh, consults, um, you know, we we uh, are able to, to fit those patients in as well. Uh, that just needs to be marked. I would prefer that I put quotations around urgent because I think because there's such a problem with access, um, consultations have been placed as urgent when they're, they just, patients need to be seen, um, but they're uh, by neurology, but not necessarily uh, refractory. Uh, but again, you know, all patients with seizures we do uh, understand are urgent. So, uh, and we try and get them in as soon as possible. Um, we, one of the reasons why we have uh, such long wait times is neurology just in the, the decades, the past few decades, uh, we've gone from really a consulting service, just kind of this, you know, one or two time consult uh, to managing a chronic disease um, and rightfully so. I mean, neurological conditions are complicated and they do need, uh, uh, well, I would say a lot of uh, complicated uh, conditions in general are uh, subspecialty. Uh, that's why we exist. <laughs> yeah, you're uh, you know, reaching for help and and uh, then you do need to follow, uh, uh, be followed longitudinally. Uh, limited number of provi providers and resources uh, and there are some uh, one of the other um, access issues and what we do realize uh, marginalized communities, uh, our native population uh, and uh, you know, communities of color, they are uh, underserved um, and there's also hesitancy uh, for uh, them to reach out to the medical system and there's uh, various historical reasons for that. Uh, so there are um, access uh, 
problems and we I fully recognize that. I uh, want to leave the, the rest of the time for questions um, and uh, please uh, uh, feel free to also uh, contact me either you know email uh, teams uh, if uh, you don't answer these questions I'm more than happy to be available for you. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that teaching, Dr. Evans. Um, please go ahead and post any other comments or questions from our audience. I will go ahead and get us started with some that have come through already. Um, a common question I'm sure for you, Dr. Evans, and that we often encounter in primary care. Can you remind us about driving rules in Oregon as it pertains to epilepsy diagnosis? Yes, and I uh, apologize that I didn't have a slide on this and I very much should have. So each state is independently governed uh, for, uh, you know, your state DMV. <laughs> you have to move, to move to a different state. You got to have, you know, go to their uh, you know, wait or take a test or whatnot. So the, the uh, law in Oregon is you need to be uh, 90 days or three months seizure free. Uh, before you can resume driving. It is a mandatory reporting state, meaning if somebody does have uh, uncontrolled seizures, they do need to be uh, reported. And the DMV takes that into consideration. They have a board that reviews the information and they it's up to them whether or not they take the license away. Uh, so they typically go by our recommendations, but not always. Um, we. The DMV actually came and spoke with the neurology group about maybe six or seven years ago, saying that we were reporting patients too frequently, uh, which was quite interesting. Um, but um, after uh, uh, the, the law specifically says um, uh, uncontrolled seizures, uh, well, severe and uncontrolled seizures. Uh, so if somebody has a first time seizure, they don't necessarily need to be reported because we don't know if they're uncontrolled. Uh, but I do tend to have the ER uh, and uh, uh, referring physicians tell the patient they cannot drive until they're seen by neurology, which um, is about a month. Uh, in a lot of cases, um, ideally, if you get them, you can refer patients to our first seizure clinic and would get them in sooner with the testing done and to really stratify those patients whether or not they need to go on uh, to have a, uh, a uh, treatment for epilepsy. So uh, after a first time seizure, uh, then not necessarily need to report. Um, if they're uncontrolled seizures, it is a mandatory reporting state. Great, thank you. That's extremely helpful and in including the comments on the first seizure. Uh, maybe along those lines, could you comment just a little bit more specifically about how we refer to the first time seizure clinic? Uh, yes, um, you can uh, just on the referral itself, uh, you can put it market as urgent and just simply put in the comments uh, referral for first seizure clinic. Our staff is trained to grab onto those and uh, pass those by us and we just like I say we fit those patients in so you can either contact or call the neurology office uh, directly uh, or simply on the referral uh, mark as urgent and first seizure clinic great thank you uh, thanks so much for your commitment to seeing our patients um, 
you went on to largely cover this in the presentation, but I'll just open a little space in case you had any other comments. There was a question um, about ep epilepsy diet therapy um, and just wondering a bit more about the specifics, possibly the evidence um, for diet changes in controlling seizures. Yeah, a great question and uh, an entire uh, PowerPoint presentation on this <laughs> not another time. Uh, but yes, there's evidence-based uh, uh, medicine and uh, great uh, some great results from the addition of uh, diet therapy. So this is uh, adjunctive therapy. So they're already being treated with an anticonvulsant and we move then towards a, a modified uh, ketogenic diet is what we use, and uh, the evidence uh, is it shows even from 12 uh, up to 30 percent of patients may benefit from a strict uh, diet. They got to stick with it, um, and uh, there it's it can be very very effective. Um, somebody goes on to a, a really a, a ketogenic, classic ketogenic diet, it really needs to be monitored. Uh, the modified ketogenic diets, even we, we highly uh, recommend uh, a dietary consultation uh, because we need to monitor uh, labs. I mean, these are high fat diets. Uh, we need to be monitoring lipids. And, and we also need to check even some micronutrients such as zinc, which can, be can become deficient. And also selenium, if somebody's selenium level is low, Low, they could be thrown into a cardiac dysrhythmia. So it's it's very important to, to be followed. And uh, yes, there there are uh, there are some evidence, uh, uh, many evidence based uh, guidelines and uh, showing efficacy for the diets. Great, thanks so much. I just want to call out a comment from our audience here, saying excellent presentation. And one question as a point of clarification, going back to the driving. Is the 90-day rule true even for partial or absent seizures? Uh, if the patient does not lose consciousness as and they have a, let's just say a simple partial seizure, uh, but the, the new uh, classification, they have a, a focal aware seizure and they have a very specific aura of uh, tingling in their right arm perhaps a sense of deja vu perhaps uh, but some very small uh, uh, manifestation that they're not losing awareness they uh, they can continue to drive. If that has progressed, go, it goes into a focal impaired aware seizure or generalized seizure, then they cannot be driving. Uh, if they have uh, absence seizures is essentially a loss of consciousness. And they patients with absence uh, seizures, if they continue to have them, they cannot drive. Great, thank you. That makes a lot of sense. Appreciate the clarification. Uh, I want to be respectful. We're nearly at the top of the hour, um, but I will pose one last question and uh, send my thank you and let you finish with that response, Dr. Evans. Um, the last question is, um, as you note, um, our neurologists often continue to follow patients in more of a chronic disease management model, though some do return to primary care, particularly if they've been stable for a long time. Um, any recommendations for ability to 
advise stopping anti-seizure medications um, or is that so individualized that they really should return to neurology for input? Return to neurology. I think that that would be the most appropriate. Um, I do want to make one comment about partnering with primary care uh, because our resources uh, and wait times are very challenging. Uh, we are uh, when appropriate referring patients back, but we do need to have a very specific plan in place of uh, things that you should be uh, monitoring. Uh, and um, if, if it's simply uh, ref refilling medication, uh, it wouldn't necessarily need a subspecialist to be doing that. Great, thanks so much. Um, you answered so many questions of ours and we're so grateful for this outstanding care and to have you as a resource. Um, we will see everybody next week for our DE Olson lectureship with Dr. Lisa Rosenbaum from Harvard. Um, thank you, Dr. Evans. Uh, everyone have a wonderful day. Great, thank you for having me.